You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Great to see you today. A uh, couple of passages you need to go ahead and flip to and, and get ready. Isaiah chapter 40 is one, and then Matthew chapter 6 is the other. So if you'll go ahead and get those ready. We have a lot of work today, and so or to do today, and so uh, yeah, that, that would give you a head start there. Okay, so we're in a set of sermons on change, how God works change through us in the gospel. And um, a couple of weeks ago, we introduced to you uh, the, the fictitious angry man. Y'all remember him? The cra- I mean, he's crazy, that guy. Okay, so, so this week, we're going we're gonna to kind of put him aside, and we're going to introduce you to a new person this week. Um, it's not the angry man, it's the anxious woman. Y'all ever met her? Maybe. Okay, good. And so after the service, a person comes up to you, and they, uh, they catch you. A lady catches you and says, uh, I have got a problem. And, and she describes it to you. I, I am so stressed, so frayed, so frenzied, so frazzled. I, I can't stop worrying about our finances. I mean, we've got money in the bank, but what if a tsunami hits Dallas? Okay, I, I, like our kids, it's not like they have any like huge problems right now, but I'm just constantly worried something's going to happen to them. I mean, I'm just sure that somebody's going to kidnap them. Like if they're playing in the front yard, a meteor is going to literally fall in the front yard, kill them all. Like I just can't get past all this worry, right? And so my friends, I've got a friend that's upset with me right now. They're telling what she's saying back behind my back. Uh, my husband, he's a great guy, um, but he, he, he could hit a midlife crisis. He may leave me, right? And so she's just frayed, frenzied. She's stressed to the T, anxious, worried. And she looks at you and says, what's the issue? What's my problem? Okay, now, now in this moment, she's looking to you for a diagnosis, right? She's looking at you and saying, counselor, you, what is my issue, right? I mean, this is what she's doing in that moment. And there's got to be a growing awareness in you and in us that her problem is not her circumstances, Right? It's not the size of her bank account. It's not that a tsunami may hit Dallas. It's not that a meteor may fall. It, that's not the issue. Her problem is a heart problem. The heart of the problem is always the heart. This is what we've been just kind of reiterating week after week. And I hope this is settling in. Our problem is a heart problem. Our heart is believing and trusting in things that are smaller than Jesus for our significance, for our security, for our rescue. This is the issue in all of our life. See, the, the, the reason that our behavior gets weird is because our belief is messed up. See, unbelief lies under all of our behavior issues. Okay, now last week we, we threw this, uh, just kind of this graph up chart, whatever you want to call it. Just to help and kind of you seeing what we're talking about here. See, what we're saying is like all, like the behavior's at the top of the screen. And, and here's the thing about behavior. It's never okay to just address behavior. Reason. Because at, like our behavior is motivated from our heart. Our behavior is always determined by what we're believing in. God and his gospel or false gods and false gospels. Our behavior is always determined by that. And so this is what we're trying to just continue to say, that both God and his gospel and false gods and and false gospels, they all offer you promises and warnings. Like right now, idols in your heart offer promises and warning, and God and his gospel are offering promises and warnings. So for a believer, this would be a promise of the gospel. I have given you, this would be God saying to you, because of the work of Jesus, I have given you 
everything you need for life and godliness. Hear that. Everything you need for your security, for your significance, for your satisfaction, everything. Warning from God. You can, you can search the world over. Every road you get on that doesn't have me at the end is a dead end. In your quest for those things, I, I'm it for you. So, so here, we'll just use this one today. We'll, we'll say um, the idol of control in our life. It, here's what it would say. Promise. I, I know that you think God is, is a good savior and, and he would provide you the security that you long for, but, but let's just be honest with ourselves. You're gonna have to control some things. You're gonna have to control your friends. You're gonna have to make sure your future is kind of in this box of control. Right? You're going to have to make sure your finances kind of fall under this box of control, that you've got kind of a handle on all these things. So you're going to have to get a grip on your, the people around you, the circumstances around you. You're going to have to kind of get a grip on these and make sure they're within your control. And as soon as you can control those things, then you'll have the security that you long for. And here's the, the warning from security, or from control. If you don't get a grip on these things, you'll never have security. You'll never have what you long for. It will always be hopeless for you, right? This is how this works. And see, the battle for your behavior up here is determined by this battle for belief down here. Like in the moment, what are you functionally believing? Like on Tuesday morning, do you functionally believe that God's given you everything you need for life and godliness? Or do you believe this idol of control that I've got to kind of get this person to do what I want them to do? I've got to make sure this job kind of fits like this. I've got to make sure I fix the economy. I've got to make sure all... what, what do you functionally believe in that moment? See, this is where the issue is for us. Underneath all of our behavior is an issue of belief. And this is why, listen to this, every issue is a gospel issue because the reason we do any wrong behavior is we are not believing in part and pieces of what God has pledged and promised to us in the gospel. How do we see that? The reason our behavior goes weird on us is because we are not believing in some part or some piece of what God has pledged to us in the gospel. Okay, so take our anxious, or take our anxious lady, worried lady. See, what she needs is not a do this better. See, it's not an issue of doing something better. It's an issue of believing better. See that? It's a belief issue. And so what we said last week, what this lady needs to do is not activity. She needs to remind herself of the gospel. She needs to roll this over, rehearse it in her mind. She needs to ponder it. She needs to study it. She needs to stare at it. She needs to soak in it and to remind her heart of all that she has, of all that she is in the gospel. See, this is what we called last week, preaching the gospel to yourself. It's taking all these great gospel realities and it's preaching those to your heart so you continually, on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, moment by moment, you stay mindful of all that you have and all that you are in the gospel, right? This is the issue for all of us. It's this belief level, right? Okay, so, so here's what we're doing in the month of May. Um, my hope and our hope is that through the month of May, God would give our church family and you as a dad, a mom, a friend, a vocabulary, so you can preach the gospel to your own heart and you can admonish the hearts of one another with the gospel. So we're gonna roll through four truths this month, four great and grand gospel truths this month. That, that I'll preface it like this. When you think of weird behavior that comes out in you, 
You can trace all of your weird behavior back to not believing one of these four things or a combination of these four things. So underneath all of our bad be- or wrong behavior it is unbelief in, in these sort of gospel realities. So we're going to talk through issues like this. God is great for us because of Jesus, so we don't have to be in control. God is good for us because of Jesus, so we don't have to look for satisfaction elsewhere. God is gracious to us because of Jesus, so we don't have to look for approval in other places. God is glorious to us because of Jesus, so we don't have to fear others. And and you can just test yourself. I'm telling you, all of your weird behavior is rooted in unbelief in these things. So test yourself. Over the next month, as you see weird things come out of you, like somebody nicks you and weird stuff pops out, right? So when that happens, just ask yourself the question, these two questions. Is what I'm thinking, feeling, and the way I'm responding, is it reflective of a gospeled heart? A heart that really believes all that God has pledged and promised to us. And if not, ask yourself this question. What part or what piece of the gospel am I not believing? And you're going to be able to trace it back to one of these things, right? And so this is our hope for the month of May. This vocabulary develops and you grow in your ability to preach the gospel to yourself and admonish the hearts of one another with it. Okay, so this, uh, this morning we've got a lot of work. We're on God is great, so we don't have to be in control. So here we go. Isaiah chapter 40. You want to make sure that's in front of you. Isaiah chapter 40. God is great. Okay, so as we, um, just to, to preface Isaiah chapter 40 here, um, a couple things you need to know. The, Isaiah fits into kind of two um, sections. There's section one that is basically chapter one through chapter 39. And those 39 chapters, it's God speaking through Isaiah discipline and judgment on his people. So, so he's about to do some things to wake them up. So that's the first 39 chapters. Then um, chapters 40 through, through 66, it's God speaking through Isaiah a message of comfort to his people. So in the midst of this discipline, I want you to know, he's saying through Isaiah, that I'm still here for you, that, that I have not abandoned you, that, that I'm still out for the rescue, right? And I think it's interesting, right in the middle of this second section, um, these 26 chapters, right in the center of that, you've got Isaiah 53, one of the clearest glimpses forward in the Old Testament of what Jesus will do for us. And so I think it's just important for you to know that when you're looking for comfort from God, that always centers on the cross, right? Okay, but here's what I want you to notice right now. In, in chapter 40, the beginning of this book of comfort, I want you to see how Isaiah starts all of this, how he starts comforting his people. And, and so look at verse 9 in Isaiah chapter 40. Look at what he says. He says, get up or get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities, behold your God. See, Isaiah wants the the people of Israel to behold their God, to look at their God, to think about their God, to see some things about their God. Now, if you've got an ESV right above verse nine, here's what it's gonna say. The greatness of God. And here's what Isaiah wants to unpack for the people of Israel to start his book of comfort here. These last 26 chapters, he wants them to see how great their God is. Let me say that one more time. Isaiah wants his people to see, God's people to see how great God is. Okay, so, so he's going to start unpacking this. I'm going to, I've kind of divided it into four or five different little points here. Um, but maybe we could start out by saying this. Isaiah wants him to see that the greatness of God is incomparable. I mean, it's incomparable. Like there's not words that would go to describe this thing. Look at verse 18. And he says this twice in this chapter, verse 18 and verse 25. Um, 18 goes like this, though. 
To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare him? The answer, in the context of his greatness, the answer is no one. There's no one that I could sit up here beside beside God and say, if you just kind of look at this, then you would get how great God is. It doesn't work that way. God's greatness is beyond the limits of language. Like you, you can't put God's greatness in word style. It just doesn't work. Language doesn't express the greatness of God. It's impossible to do that. This is um, similar to what the psalmist says in Psalms 143, verse three, when he says the greatness of God is unsearchable. See, and he, 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 this is what he means by unsearchable. It's not that you can't know some things about the greatness of God, but that you can live in it forever and our finite and small minds will never know all of it. It's impossible. It's incomparable. Like it's beyond the scope of language. It, it's beyond what we could verbalize, he's saying. But that doesn't stop him from trying, right? He, he's trying here in chapter 40. So listen to what he goes on to say. That God is great in size and splendor. Look at verse 12. That God is not, uh, he, he's great in size and in splendor, in, in his mass and his majesty. L- look at what he says here in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the, uh, the heavens with a span and closed the duff, dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? He's using these metaphors just to try to give pictures, just just kind of mental pictures of how great God is. So he says, um, water. Let, let's just take that as an example. Scientists, um, well, okay, let me back up. 70% of the earth is covered in water. Um, of that, I think the average like depth of the oceans is something like a couple of thousand feet. It's, it's crazy deep. Um, scientists estimate that there are 326 million trillion gallons of water on the planet, right? That's a lot of water. I don't care who you are, right? That's a lot of water. That's 326 with 18 zeros behind it. That's how many gallons. And Isaiah is saying all of that fits right here. Like, like this is the, the mass and the majesty of God. This is a metaphor to, to help you see that. He, he says, um, think about the heavens. Right? I mean, if you look up, that's a big thing up there above you, right? Like scientists use the speed of light to measure all that. Um, so, so let's just back up. When I think fast, I think like Usain Bolt. That's fast. Set a world record last Olympics in the 100, right? I think it was like a 9.58 or something just ridiculous, right? I look at that and think, that's fast. Okay, now, now hear me. By the time he finished that race, what, what, what scientists use to measure the universe, light years, by the time he's finished that race, light has traveled around the earth over 74,000 times, right? So, so this, I, I mean, it doesn't even make sense, right? I mean, how do you even talk about that? You just know that's really fast. Like that's faster than fast for us. And, and here's what God is, or Isaiah is saying. Uh, and by the way, scientists measure the universe at something like one, uh, 156 billion light years wide. So that's, that's, that's big, right? And, and so Isaiah is saying, I, I don't care what your scientists use to measure that. God uses the span of his hand, pinky to thumb. This is God, right? Uh, he's going to talk about mountains, hills. And, and he's going to say that well, the next time you drive through the Colorado Rockies, and, and you, you have this tendency to be in awe at their majesty and at their size, don't be awed at them. Be awed at the God who speaks and they're created and who can take them like in his hand and weigh them. Be in awe of that God. See, he's trying just to, to build in an imagery for you of this is how great he is. This is his greatness in just sheer size. 
right? In splendor. This is your God here. Okay, he he goes on and he says um, this, that God is great in his wisdom. See verse 13? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man uh, shows him counsel? Verse 14, whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Now, men, I want to just help you just for a second here. When, uh, when your wife looks at you and looks at the floor and your jeans in the floor and she says, hey, uh, do you plan on leaving those there? She's not asking a question, right? I just want to help you in that. That's not a question. See, it's a rhetorical question. Here's what a rhetorical question is. It's a question that is so obvious. Pick up your stuff, right? It's so obvious that it's making a statement. And see, this is what Isaiah is doing. He's looking at God and he's looking at these people and trying to provide comfort. And he's saying, who has counseled him? Like, where does God go? I mean, does God like call in the professionals or what? I mean, who, who does he go to to get understanding, to learn justice, to get wisdom? It's a rhetorical question. Isaiah is saying, no one. There is no one that God looks to for counsel. God, God doesn't need any of our advice. God doesn't need any of our, I mean, he doesn't need any of that from anyone. He is wise. I, and just to kind of help put this in perspective, I think if you look at like verse uh, 22, Here's the comparison that Isaiah gives just to show, show us the difference between us and God. If we're going to make a comparison here, if God is a human, then we are grasshoppers, right? You see that in verse 22? So I don't, I mean, that would almost be insulting if it wasn't accurate, right? And so Isaiah is saying, listen, God doesn't need counsel from grasshoppers. He doesn't need that. He knows all things. So when we say that God is wise, we are saying that he knows all things, that he knows what is best in all things, and he always does what is best in all things. This is his wisdom. Isaiah is saying, listen, this is how great your God is. He's wise. Um, he goes on though. He's going to say that God is great in his wakefulness. Now, I love this because when I think about sleep, sleep is a humbling thing. I mean, it's humbling, isn't it? To know that, that you, you operate much like a battery. You're on for 16 hours and then you're on the charger, right? I mean, this is how all of us work. We can't function without sleep. If I don't get sleep, I get crazy, delusional, right? I get cranky, irritable. I get tired. I get weary. This is true for all of us, but that is not true with God. Look at verse 28. He says, have you not known, have you not heard? The, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. Do you see this? Like God's scale, like his, um, his fuel gauge never kind of runs over in the empty direction. It never happens. He is always awake. He is always energetic. He is always engaged. He is always working. He is never tired. He is never weary. He never needs a nap. He never takes a nap. He is always awake. He's great in his awakefulness. Do you see this? Okay, and, and last one Isaiah is going to tell us here. That God is great in his sovereignty. Now when we say the word sovereignty, here, here's what we mean by that. We mean that God is in ultimate control that he rules all things, that there is not one molecule of matter in the universe that is outside of God's control, and that everything that happens, listen to this, everything that happens, happens for one of two reasons. God actively directed it, 
or he passively permitted it. Everything that happens falls under his sovereignty. Everything. Okay, now Isaiah is going to say this. Look at what he says in verse 10. And behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. See, he's saying that God is strong. That he is mighty enough to do all that he wants. And this is the psalmist in Psalms 115.3, where he says, our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. That's the sort of power that he has. This is Job 42, um, verse 2, where Job just acknowledges before God, I know that you can do all things and that none of us, no one, nothing can thwart your purposes. We can't do it. God will always accomplish what he wants to accomplish. He'll always do what he wants to do. It's impossible for you or I to barricade and block his, his purposes. This is what he's saying here. Look at verse 17. He goes on. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing. So, so Isaiah is saying, God is greater than the greatest nation. You know that? That the world is not shaped by the power of nations. The world is shaped by the power of God. I mean, is that, are we seeing that? Okay, he, he goes on. Look at verse 23. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they, these princes, these rulers planted, scarcely sown, scarcely is their stem taken root in the earth when he, God, blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. So Isaiah is saying, you take the strongest person on the planet, and God is stronger. See, that, like our, like history is not shaped by powerful people. It's shaped by a powerful God. Like this is Psalms, um, or Proverbs 21, where he said, like, take the king's heart. It's like a stream of water in the hands of God, and he directs it where he wills. See that? That, that it is God who, who speaks and plants a ruler or a prince or you, a person, he waters them and grows them. And then when he blows on them, they're gone. It's true for all people, not just kings and princes, right? Okay, he, he, uh, he goes on. Look at verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? We're talking about stars now. He who brings out the, their host, the, the stars by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. He's saying, listen, look up. And when you see the stars, that is a picture of the sovereign rule of God. The reason that they're in the sky and they stay in the sky is because God is sovereign. He tells them to, that's why. Now, if you keep reading in Isaiah, you get to chapter 40, you're going to see that Isaiah says, God, he plans the end from the beginning. That's how sovereign he is, right? That, that even the birds that hunt, they do that because God tells them to. That the oceans that roar, they roar because God tells them to. That this is a picture of the sovereignty of God. In Paul's language in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11, here's Paul's language for it, that he brings everything together. He works all things kind of together toward the counsel of his will. All things really means all like all things, all things. Okay, let me just give you a list of what the Bible says is under God's sovereign rule. This will be up on the screen for you. God sovereignly rules over nature. Psalms 135, the grass growing. Psalms 104, disasters. The work of Satan is all under the sovereign rule of God. The fall of sparrows, the rolling of dice. So even things that look like random chance, nothing is random chance. There's no such thing. It's an illusion. There is the power of God. That's it. There's sovereignty. Okay, he goes on. Or we go on here. The affairs of nations, Daniel 2, Job 12. The acts of men, the acts of sinful men, 
all fall under the sovereignty of God. Second Samuel um, 24, Genesis 45, the, fa- uh, the failing of sight all falls under the sovereignty of God. When and where you live falls under the sovereignty of God. Your gifts and your talents fall under the sovereignty of God. Your physical appearance and personality, the sickness of children, the loss and gain of money, the suffering of saints, the hardening and softening of hearts, the contemplation of travel plan or the completion of travel plans, the repentance of souls under the sovereignty of God, the gift of faith under the sovereignty of God, the pursuit of holiness, the growth of believers, the giving of life, and the taking of life. And even, supreme example, the death of his son, all under the sovereignty of God. Right? Yeah, you know what? That should be cause to to clap a little bit. That, That we can look at God and say, there is nothing, there is nothing that happens on this planet out from under your rule. Either it's the active direction or the passive permission but it's all under your sovereign rule. Okay, now this is where we need to take a turn. Because it is not enough for you to leave today and to know that God is great. That's not enough for you. That will not offset unbelief in your heart to know that God is sovereign. Okay, now now I I want you to see, this is massively important. You get what's about to happen right now. See, here's what the gospel does to a truth like, God is great, he is sovereign. See, the gospel transforms that truth into something awe-inspiring and electrifying. Here's what the gospel does with that. Because of the work of Jesus for us, this great God is now our great God. Do we see this? Because of the work of Jesus, God is great for us. You see the difference in those two? That the gospel announces that you have been adopted by God. That you are a son or a daughter of God. That the God now, as your good father, is leveraging all of his great strength for the ultimate benefit of his undeserving sons and daughters. So this is what the gospel announces. That the great God of the scriptures is your great God. That great God is your good father. You see this. So here's what it does for us. The gospel then assures us If you're a son or daughter of God, it assures us that even in dark and difficult days where it feels like the sovereignty of God is slaying us, in actuality, we can know that it's saving us. See that? This is what what the gospel does to this truth. It takes God is sovereign and it says God is sovereign for you now, for your benefit now, for your ultimate good now. Okay, now I want you to see the implication of that. Here's what this means for your life and my life. That you, that, that I, that we do not have to be in control. Now, can you just breathe real deep here and, and hear that? That you do not have to be in control. That it's not up to you. That ultimately at the end of the day, the affairs of history, the affairs of your life, It's not ultimately up to you. It's God that is sovereign. See, I mean, for all of us, well, let me back up and say this. See, the sovereignty of God for a lot of people is like a point of theological debate. It's not primarily a point of theological debate. It's primarily a point of daily and practical living. See, all of us in this room, we live in one of two worlds. Either we live in a real world or the world that we have made up. Okay, so it goes like this. Here's real world. Real world is God is really sovereign, And if you're a son or daughter of God, he is leveraging everything for your ultimate good. Illusionary world goes like this. 
I am in control. If, 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 it, if it's not, I mean, if I don't do this, it's not ever going to get done. The world is on your shoulders, right? I mean, you, you, it's all on you. See, this is why we live stressed out, right? See, and, and here's what our behavior betrays for all of us in the room. That what we confessionally sing on Sundays in here, we don't practically believe on Monday, on Tuesday. See, this is why um, Calvin said we're partly all unbelievers until we die. Because we're functionally believing in other things in the moment, right? This is what happens to all of us. Take, take the business guy who he is convinced that to close the business deal, he has to bend the truth. Let's use biblical language, lie, right? So, so he's convinced he has to bend that truth to close that deal. See, that is him trying to take control of that. To take our anxious lady. I, I've got to make sure we build nets to, to protect meteors. Our bank account's so big, tsunamis are kind of accounted for. I mean, it's a control issue. See, functionally, on Monday, she wakes up and she is believing. Not that God is great for me, because of the work of Jesus, but that I have to be great for me. I have to make sure all this is protected and secure. I've got to do all this stuff, control all these things to make sure life goes okay for us. Do you see this? See, this is the problem for, for us, that we've got this unbelief in our heart, that rather than believing in all that God has pledged and promised to be for us because of Jesus, a good father, a powerful father, working for your good, we turn from that and we believe this idolatry uh, of control that we, we, we've got to get our hands on this. We've got to make sure our, our friends are controlled. Our finances are controlled. Our future is controlled. Our relationships are controlled. Our jobs are controlled, right? I mean, we've got to know how the end turns out like right now. We've got to know all that. So this is that functional unbelief that lies in all of us. Okay, now I, I want to show you, I just want to display for you how control seeps its way into all of your life. Like this need in you for control, that this idol in us of control. I, I want to show you, I just want to, I want to make sure that you see an accurate picture of this. See, some um, um, theologians would, would consider like this idol of control a source idol. And, and here's what that would practically mean. That if you sever this branch of unbelief, thousands of things fall behind it. In other words, it's really close to the root of unbelief in all of our life. So all of these behavioral issues up here, a bunch of them find their roots, kind of all come back into this idea that we've got to control things. So I, let's just kind of roll this out and tease this out a little bit. So let's, um, let's talk about our anxious lady. Why is it that she's anxious? Why is it that she's frayed and fragile and stressed out? Her job's killing her. her she's worried about her marriage. She's worried about her kids. Worried about everything that she could be worried about, she's worried about. And, and can we just push pause here and say that worry is an issue for every one of us in this room? It's a, it's a universal thing for all of us. It's a universal reality for us. It's just that our worry looks different. See, for some of you, you're, you're stressed out about your kids. For others, you're stressed out about your job. You're stressed out about the economy. You're stressed out about your relationships. You're stressed out about losing your job. You're stressed out about your reputation. You're stressed out about your retirement. See, worry is, it, it's for all of us in the room. It's not just some, your health. It's all of us. And let, let me show you the heart of what worry is. Let me express it in one author's words. Worry implies that we don't quite trust that God is big enough or powerful enough or loving enough to take care of what's happening in our lives. You see that? See, th this lady's problem has nothing. I, be, the behavior is not a problem. It, it's the functional belief in the moment. Like when her kids go out and play in the front yard, 
It's the functional belief in that moment, is God great for me, for us? See, that, that's the issue. Okay, but, but it goes a lot further than just um, ladies and their kids, right? Let, let's take the man that's a workaholic. Like, let's take the man who, he just can't shut it off, right? And this is going to be painful for a lot of us in this room. He just can't shut it off. Like, he's answering emails at 10 p.m. as if that's really going to make a difference, right? I mean, he, he, he's constant, he can't sleep because he's constantly rolling decisions that have to be made. Like, what about this possible problem? What about these possible solutions? He just can't shut off. He's always going. You can't have a conversation without seeing like a nervous twitch in him, right? I mean, this is, this is that guy who just cannot shut it off. Why, why is that? You know why that is? Because he does not trust in the moment that God is great for him. You know the reason we can't take a day off, men? It's because we don't trust that when we rest, God works for us. Do you know why we can't sleep very well at night sometimes? We have all this stuff kind of rolling in our head. You know why that is? Because when we rest, we really don't believe that God's at work for us. That God's awake. That God's great for us because of Jesus. We don't believe that. And maybe I can even say it this way, and this is going to sting just a little bit, but I think we need this sting. Working a 12, 13, 14-hour day consistently, men, that's not a badge of honor before God. That's typically the result of unbelief in God. You hear that? But typically that, that motive down underneath that's causing you to do that has nothing to do with the glory of God. It has everything to do with control in your life. That you really believe, if I don't do it, it will never happen. If I don't make this happen, it's all hopeless. That my business, my job, all of it rests on what I can do here. And it doesn't. See, it's just a failure to believe in the moment that God is great for you. I mean, we could go on for days here. We could talk about, we could talk about the risk-averse person. You know that person? Like, literally, they're not going to move out of their box of control for anything. Like, see, like this, this person, when God says, hey, I, I'm calling you to do something different. I'm calling you to change jobs. I'm calling you to move your, your location. I'm, I'm calling you to go and share the gospel with that person. I'm calling you to befriend your neighbor. I'm calling you to uproot your family, plant your family in an unreached people group, and give your life to building a business there, not here. See, I, I'm calling you to do something like that. See, this person, risk averse, they can never do that. Because they don't have like an Excel sheet that says, this is step one, two, 10, 20, and this is how it ends. They, they don't have that Excel sheet. So because they don't have that Excel sheet, they don't have that control, they won't get out of the box. You know why they won't get out of the box? Why they'll never do those things? It's because in their heart, they functionally believe they have to control things. They don't believe that God is great for them because of what Jesus has done for them. Do, do we see this? We could go on for days here. Take the, the guy that has experienced horrific suffering. And it has caused great resentment in his heart toward God. Peel back the layers there. Why is that? You go down far, far enough, you're, you're going to see this idol of control as an issue. That he had his life planned, step one, step two, step ten, and then I die. Not step one and a huge detour, Right? And so the issue is, he had his life planned. It was controlled. He could kind of manage all that. And God just wrecked his plans. See, that's why he's not functionally believing that God is great for him. That, that God actually knows what is best for him and will do what is best for him. And, I mean, the story goes on and on. We could, we could throw finances into this, right? That, that the control guy with finances will either be like 
ridiculously frugal on this side, or he'll want money so bad, right, that he'll steal to get it. We could take friendships and put it right in the middle of friendships. Do you know why people manipulate friendships? Why we see people as projects and not people? Because of control. We've got one through ten to get done, and these people need to get two through five done. They're not people. They're a part of the process to get our world kind of ordered. See, when we have to control our future, we'll never take a risk. I mean, the story goes on and on. See, here's what I'm trying to show you. Like this idol of control in our life sprouts up and grows into a million different behaviors that are all on the category of sinful. Wrong. Okay, now now here's what I want to do. I want to end in Matthew chapter 6, and I want to show you how Jesus destroys this idol, kind of this idolatry of control. Matthew chapter 6. How God deals with with anxiety and worry, this idol of control and all these things that it produces. Matthew chapter um, 6, starting in verse 25, goes like this. This is Jesus talking here, and he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Okay, now, now hear what I'm about to say. Jesus just gave a command. Don't do this. You don't need, yeah, don't, don't do that, right? And so now he's addressing their behavior here. Now I want you to hear this real clear. That behavior is never enough. If all you deal with is behavior, behavior, you never get to the idolatry and unbelief in a person's heart. And Jesus knows that. Like it's perfectly fine and people need to hear, don't be anxious. Don't worry. Get, I mean, you're, you're, don't believe this control thing here. Don't believe that. People need to hear that, but it's never enough. And Jesus knows that. So watch him work. Watch how he goes now, where he goes now. Verse 26. So don't be anxious. And, and let me show you why. Let, let me, let me get to the heart of this issue. Look at the birds of the air. Okay. Now when he says, look, he's saying, think, remember, preach these things to yourself. Recall these things. Keep these things before you. Consider the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Birds don't have a bank account. They they, they don't have like a garage out back where they store their food. They don't have any of that. And listen, they sing. And, And Jesus is saying, look at those birds. If that is how your heavenly Father protects them, feeds them. That's what he does for them. And you see the words heavenly father in there? You might want to circle that. See, if you don't believe God is your heavenly father, that he is all powerful and good for you as a dad, you'll never get worry out of your life. See, that, that's at the heart of our unbelief, right? That he's a good dad for you. And watch his next statement. Are you not of much more value than they? See, that's a rhetorical question that I want to answer. Because of the gospel, the answer is you are more valuable than them. That, that there is a difference between you and the birds. So if, if, if God would feed and protect them, couldn't you trust him as your good dad to, to feed and protect you? You see, see how, what's happening here? Okay, keep going. 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? You can't. Verse 28. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider. Preach to yourself. Remind yourself of this. Continually recall this. 
Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's saying, look at the lilies. Look at, look at these things. Look at how they're dressed. Do you see their clothing? Do you see that bloom on them? Do you see the brilliant colors in that? If that is how God would provide for a flower, grass, if that's how God would provide for that, for that it's here today, gone tomorrow. If that's how he would treat that flower, how would he treat a son or a daughter? How would he treat a son or a daughter? Don't you think you could trust him to know what is best for you and to do what is best for you? I mean, don't you, I mean, if that's how he treats them, robins and roses, don't, don't you think he could do this for you, right? To, to the anxious heart in the room, God is your heavenly father. He does good and is good for you. And look at the last part of verse 30. See, he gets to the heart of the issue. Oh, you of little faith. Do you see this? That it's a belief issue. In the moment of our worry, anxiety, our stressed outedness, see that the issue is belief. Jesus knows this. The issue is not their behavior. That's the symptoms. The problem is, is they're not believing and trusting that I am a good father for you. That because of the work of Jesus, that God is great for you. Now, we'll, we'll finish it in what he says here. Verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. I love how I heard one lady put it. She said, um, do you know why the Gentiles seek after these things? Because they're orphans. They need to. Do you know why you, as a son or daughter, you, you don't need to search after? You've got God as your dad. That's why. You, you don't have to go on this frantic search for control, because you've got a good dad that is controlling all things. And look how I finish it here. For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Isn't that a good thing to know about God? That he knows every one of your needs right now. You know what that means for your life? That if right now you don't have something, it's because you don't need it. That God knows best, and he does best for you. And if you need it, you'd have it right now. See, the answer to, to worry and control is not try harder and do better. The, the answer is not, I must stop this. I must not do that. That's not the answer. The answer is, you're a son or daughter of God. You don't need to do that. You don't, you don't need to. And I'll, I'll just finish with some practical examples of this in my own life. A year and a half ago, um, Laura and I had a uh, year and a half old Hannah. She was a year and a half, and we had another baby on the way. And in the middle of all that, and that, that felt chaotic to me. I mean, that's out of my control box already, right? In the middle of all that, um, God calls us to plant Stonegate. Okay, now, now here's what that calling meant for us. However much chaos was in our life and uncertainty was in our life, just was like amplified two or three times as much. So now our financial situation is, is uncertain. Um, our ministry success situation is uncertain. Our, um, I mean, every, our, our future is uncertain. We don't, we don't know what's going to happen, right? And so th this is how the self-talk starts ramping and rolling in my mind. Um, the, the idol of control starts, starts talking like this. 
Rodney, what are you doing right now? You stay here in this environment, your, your future is secure. It, it's controlled. Illusion, right? It, it's controlled. You, you stay here, you're relationally connected. You stay here, you've got great opportunities in front of you. You stay here, financially, you're secure. You stay here, all turns out well, you stay here. You go here, all that's gone. You go here, you don't know how that's going to go. You may fail. You may, you may look down the road and there's nobody there. You may be a year and a half in and you've got like three people there and they're all your family. You don't know how that's going to roll for you, right? And in that moment, um, it was just a, a beautiful gospel moment for me where I get to remind myself that God is great for me because of Jesus and I don't have to be in control. I don't have to know if it's going to be three people and, and me in a year and a half. But I know this, that if that's what happens, God's good to me. See, I, I don't have to know like the end of the road. I don't have to know if this thing works well. I don't have to know any of those things because I have got a good father who leverages all of his great power to benefit and for the ultimate good of an undeserving son. So I can take a risk knowing God's, I mean, God's in control of this thing. He, he's working either way for my good. And I wish that that was a one-time moment for me and now worry is solved, right? But see, here's what this sounds like now, 18 months in. The idol of control sounds like this. Rodney, um, if you don't become like the best pastor on the planet, this place is going to fall apart. If you can't consistently preach like home runs for sermons, this place is over. If you can't make every decision that is perfect, this place will not survive. If you can't get all of this done, this place will fall apart on you. See, this is what the self-talk sounds like now. Essentially, the self-talk sounds like this. This idol of control is saying, I know, I mean, yeah, we can agree that God's a good savior, all that, but let's just be honest. You, what your people need, what Stonegate needs is you. You're a little better savior than God is in this moment. See, this is the self-talk that happens. And see, all throughout the last 18 months, I've had to remind myself, I am a terrible savior. I don't have to be in control. This place is not built on me. It doesn't go well because of me. It goes well because I've got a good dad. And all that he gives as a good, all-powerful dad is good. So even if it fails, it's okay. If it does fall apart, that is all right. Because I have got a good dad who does good and is good. And may we be able to preach those gospel truths to our own heart and to one another. Amen? Let's pray. One of the ways I think you can just do kind of an eval of your life and, and kind of where this registers with you is, is to try to get a picture of joy in your life and what joy looks like in your life. See, here's what the fruit of living, believing like functionally every day, by the moment, by the minute, functionally believing that God is great for us because of Jesus. Here, here's the fruit that it produces. Rather than worry and anxiety and stress and fill in the blank, it, it produces this beautiful fruit of you recognizing the sovereign reign of God over your life. And then it allows you to enjoy the ride. You hear that? Like the fruit of believing this and, and it allows you to enjoy the ride. Enjoy life. Enjoy your family. Enjoy your job. Enjoy your hobbies. Enjoy your relationships because you're not in control of them.
So how, how does joy look in your life? I mean, is your life right now riddled with stress and worry and anxiety? Like, I mean, even right now, you can't stop thinking about the 45 things that have to be done today. All that could happen might happen when you think of your kids. Or do, or do you have this, I get to enjoy my kids. I get to enjoy life. So this is the fruit of this. And if we find ourselves in just habits of unbelief when it comes to this issue, then what a great morning to repent of that. And here's what repentance would look like. God, I confess that I'm believing the tangled web of lies that control offers that I am living in the illusion that I control these things. And because I'm trying to control them, the weight and the worry and the weariness is unbearable. So so God, today I confess those things. I thank you for Jesus who covers them all. And God, I'm turning in faith and I'm going to believe today, today, I'm going to believe that you are great for me because of Jesus that you're in absolute control because of Jesus for me. That that you are reigning over the universe and you're reigning over my life. And God, I trust you to do what's best, to know what's best. I trust you for all of those things. So maybe that needs to happen in your heart right now, like that, that transfer, that repentance, turning from a belief in idols, the promises and warnings, and turning to thank you for all that the gospel secures for me. And maybe this would be an appropriate end um, today. If you are not a Christian in the room, if you've kind of been on the peripheral edge, kind of looking and analyzing and just kind of trying to figure out what, what all this is about, I want to make sure that you realize that when we say that God is great, that is for sons and daughters of God. He is great for them. And if you're not a son or daughter of God, if you haven't stepped across the line of faith, if you haven't trusted and treasured God with your life, what a great moment to do that. What a great moment to respond in faith to God and say, I trust you. I thank you for the work of Jesus. And God, I give you my life. And to treasure him, to say, God, and I desire you above all things. At the moment that happens, he adopts you into the family and he, all of his great power is leveraged for you now. So if that kind of registers with you this morning, maybe you could mark that on that guest card. There's a box there that talks about um, just wanting to kind of work through how to establish a relationship with Jesus. We'd love to have coffee with you this week and um, to help you along in all that. God, we love you. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for what it secures for us. That that in the gospel, we have all the security we need because we now have you as our father. God, give us the grace to believe that. Tomorrow, when we wake up, when we go to work, when we raise kids, when we um, do our hobbies, when we eat with friends, God, help us believe that. Give us grace to believe that. It is in your great name that we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand with us?
Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.